This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about a moment in American politics that many were not expecting. An opportunity to turn the country in a new direction when it comes to climate change. This moment was created by the election of President Joe Biden, which was decisive and not entirely unexpected. And then the flipping of two U.S. Senate seats in Georgia to the Democrats, which, you will recall, came as a pretty big surprise and tipped the Senate ever so slightly into Democratic control. But, of course, the question is what a political party does with a moment like this. And climate policy has never been a given when it comes to actual legislation. But President Biden and many of his fellow Democrats have put climate policy front and center in this first year of his administration, which is striking, both because Biden's long career in Washington, D.C. has been light on climate, and because there has been plenty of other things to worry about, like the insurrection, the pandemic, and now the withdrawal from Afghanistan. For this episode of the Crosscut Talks podcast, we're listening in on a conversation that was recorded at this year's Crosscut Festival, and that explores the depth of this commitment to climate and the possibility that something could get done to shift America toward a clean energy economy. Dr. Leah Stokes and Dr. Katherine Wilkinson lead this conversation, which they recorded as part of their Matter of Degrees podcast, a must-listen for anyone interested in following the issue. For this talk, they've invited Julian Brave Noisecat, an activist, policy wonk, and writer who also serves as the Vice President of Policy at Data for Progress, a liberal think tank. It's important to note here that this conversation took place earlier this spring. The American Jobs Plan, which is the centerpiece of the conversation here, is still making its way through Congress, though it has been knocked down a few pegs. A compromised version of the bill passed out of the Senate with many of the clean energy aspects of the original stripped out. But many Democrats are still pushing for a larger reconciliation bill that would bring back some of that investment. Like our guest this week, those lawmakers likely see this current moment as a brief window where these investments can be made, and in their eyes, must be made. Whether they will be made is still very much up in the air. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting UBS.com team slash the Arbor Group. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Julian, it's so great to have you back on our show. For better or worse, here I am, back for round two. 
Definitely better. Definitely better. It's really nice to see you, Julian. And um, Leah, I'm actually going to put you into the hot seat today, too, because you are our resident political scientist. So no coasting on hosting today. Um, And we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I think we should dig in. So we want to talk about the state of play when it comes to Congress and the Biden administration. So Julian, let's start with you. Set the scene for us. What is going on in terms of domestic climate policy in this moment? So even before President Biden took office, he signaled his strong commitment to climate action by actually creating two new positions in his administration, one for a special climate envoy, uh, who is John Kerry, and another for a domestic climate czar, uh, and that is uh, Jennifer Granholm. Oh, excuse me, no, that's EPA. Uh, that's um, Gina DOE. McCarthy. Gina McCarthy. Sorry, I get these names confused sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and then also um, a number of um, a number of other you know strong appointments for you know traditional cabinet positions. Uh, one week into his administration, he uh, unveiled a slew of executive orders exactly seven days after he was sworn in. Uh, and then in March, he unveiled the American Jobs Plan, which is a more than $2 trillion infrastructure package uh, with about a trillion dollars, depending on how you count, going towards uh, domestic climate action. We should add, although this is not going to be a huge subject of our conversation, that in April, he hosted a climate leader summit with a number of global leaders uh, where the United States tried to assert its leadership on climate uh, and tried to encourage other nations, especially uh, China and India, uh, as well as others, Brazil, uh, to take more bold action uh, to address global warming. So it's been a very significant focus of the first few months here of the Biden administration, going back to even before the president uh, assumed office. And um, there's a lot of politics that lie ahead. Uh, The American Jobs Plan is going to start moving through Congress in the coming months. And those congressional negotiations are going to, uh, alongside the the implementation of a number of regulations later on in the year, are going to determine, you know, just how much uh, the president is able to achieve on this essential issue. And you covered so much ground there. I'm very impressed. What am I going to add? Um, You know, I think, as Julian just said, the Biden administration has come out so boldly on climate change, more so than we would have thought. And it started even before the administration began with appointments, really amazing appointments. Gina McCarthy and John Kerry are, of course, top of the list, but people like Jennifer Granholm and, of course, Deb Holland that we'll talk about later, which uh, Julian was really instrumental in helping get to happen. But then even below that level, amazing people like Sonia Agarwal in the White House, David Hayes, people like Jeremiah Bowman, Shalonda Baker, Wahala Johns in the DOE. There's just so many amazing people who have deep trust and experience in the climate movement who are now inside the Biden administration and helping to fuel all the stuff that uh, Julian went over. Yeah, it is really exciting. And I think it's fair to say that there was a good bit of anxiety from activists and progressives. And I think Julian, correct us if we're wrong, but I would put you in this camp about kind of whether Biden would take climate seriously, right? At, at sort of the level that we know is is necessary and in the ways that we think are are just. And I'm curious, 
now, you know, kind of a, a season into this, how do you think Biden is doing so far on the issue? Has he wooed you when it comes to climate? Well, I guess people could question whether I take climate action seriously, given that I forgot uh, Gina McCarthy's name <laughs> um, for a second there. Apologies. Uh, so, you know, I think that there was widespread concern uh, during the presidential primary that uh, President Biden represented more of the same when it came to climate change. And on this issue in particular, more of the same is n not nearly enough and is going to, you know, ruin the planet for future generations and future selves uh, because we're at that that point in um, you know climate um, early on in his administration he made some comments that were I, I would say especially concerning um, there was a concern around his first sort of draft of his climate plan which came out around May 2019. Uh, and whether you know he would be aggressive in his stance towards natural gas or what's increasingly called fossil gas by advocates and experts. Um, and you know, to his credit, I think that uh, Biden was actually fairly responsive to those concerns over time. Um, after the primary, uh, you know, as it became very clear that Biden was going to be the Democratic Party's nominee, he created a unity task force uh, with representatives uh, from the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, including uh, leaders of the Sunrise Movement like Varshini Prakash uh, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who were both on the climate-focused working group of the Sanders unit, uh, Biden-Sanders unity task force. And, you know, he was willing to actually revise his uh, climate plan in the second edition of his platform, which was called the Build Back Better uh, plan. And I was actually talking to um, some political scientists and historians at the time, in particular, Daniel Schlossman, who wrote this wonderful book called When Movements Anchor Parties. And he told me that uh, Biden actually adopting more progressive positions when he was already assured of his party's nomination was an unprecedented move in modern democratic political history. The, the nominee usually moves to the center uh, as they're heading toward the general election and not to the left. So I think that that uh, moment of the party reconciling its ideological and other differences was really key. And I would also give the president effort in, um, you know, being this unusual political figure who seems to be able to bridge these generational and ideological divides that do exist on the American left. Yeah. Leah, what's your what's your read? I totally agree with everything Julian just said. You know, a lot of us were worried at the beginning of the primary. And um, then a new plan came out after that uh, Bernie Biden task force that Julian talked about, which included really bold ideas like the 100 uh, percent clean electricity standard by 2035, which was endorsed by that unity task force with people like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Varshini Prakash from Sunrise, etc. So, you know, we started to see really bold stuff from Biden. And it wasn't just, you know, a campaign document on a website. He was talking about this on the campaign trail. In fact, the campaign ran climate-focused ads in both Michigan and Arizona, really committing to climate as an issue. And I think Julian is so right that Biden is this unlikely figure. Maybe his mm -hmm 
closeness with his granddaughters is part of the explanation or maybe his deep empathy as a human being you know i think he really understands the fear that young people feel about climate change and he doesn't yeah. want to um leave them with this huge problem and so he's really um become this unlikely climate champion in in a really exciting way i think it's a really obviously very visible, but exciting example of what seems to be happening in so many sectors, right? Of people being willing to learn and being willing to lead um, on a topic that may not have defined their, their careers to date. And as you say, Leah, the social science does tell us that uh, daughters and granddaughters are particularly effective climate messengers. So I think you may be onto something there. Um, uh, as you mentioned, Julian, at the end of March, Biden proposed the American Jobs Plan, big proposal to spend between two to three trillion dollars on infrastructure, everything from clean public transit to clean and clean electricity, removing lead from pipes, ending fossil fuel subsidies. I think it's fair to say it's a big idea. Um, Leah, let's start with you on this one. What is going on with this proposal, Professor Stokes? Well, the American Jobs Plan, as Julian mentioned, came out right at the end of March. I believe it was March 31st. Um, Biden gave a big speech in Pittsburgh. Uh, they've sort of laid out their plans. It's a really bold idea to invest in infrastructure and invest in the clean energy transition. And a lot of the framing that the Biden administration has been focusing on is jobs. And actually, Julian's been out there, and I very much agree with him, saying that we should make climate change about benefits, about jobs, about good things, not just about Sort of pain and suffering and sacrifice and that's really the political theory behind the way they've been talking about this plan and i think it's really smart some of the components of the american jobs plan include uh the clean electricity standard trying to hit 100 clean power by 2035 um commitments on clean transportation i think this is perhaps the thing the sometimes i hear the admin talk the most about they're really into you know public transit school buses charging infrastructure evs you name it maybe that's the sort of biden effect and it certainly has rubbed off on secretary Buttigieg, who is like <laughs> biden 2.0 and his love for clean transportation and then also the building sector which is another area that i'm very passionate about in some ways actually the building's commitments are not even as bold as the campaign uh, targets were so the campaign was aiming to do two million homes uh, over the time period and the, the the american jobs plan is only saying two million buildings so that would be commercial and um and homes and that's that's something that i feel like we need to go bolder on i've mm -hmm. been very inspired by the work of rewiring america rmi sierra club lots of local groups saying hey guys we gotta electrify buildings we got to get off gas and all this new research yeah. is coming out showing that having gas in your home for kids is like having secondhand smoke that it increases the risk of asthma for kids for like by 42 percent if you have a gas stove in your home so i feel like buildings is a place where we can go bigger but yeah. really exciting stuff on transportation and the electricity sector and and even other stuff like justice like the lead pipes transformation and the commitment to the justice 40 having 40 percent of the benefits of investment go to um, disadvantaged communities so big bold idea and yeah. we got to see how it goes in congress uh, if they pick it up and and how it develops yeah, Julian, jump in if there's anything on the on the sort of legislative piece, but also curious what your thoughts are on 
the prospects of actually getting this thing into law. Um, how are you seeing the odds and what are the hurdles that have to be overcome? Yeah, so to avoid being duplicative, because I think uh, Leah covered a lot of ground there, I would just say that um, the sort of views that I've mostly seen from experts and advocates have been that the American Jobs Plan had pretty solid breadth of policy coverage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would agree that the, the stuff on buildings and housing could be stronger for sure. Um, and I think you could make the same argument in some specific areas. But overall, I would say that they're trying to do a lot across the sectors that we need to transform and decarbonize. Um, and that they are also trying to incorporate a lot of um, pieces of equity and justice. So uh, we just mentioned the Justice 40 initiative, which uh, would dedicate 40% of the benefits of the jobs plan to communities on the front lines of poverty and pollution. Uh, they're also trying to make a strong commitment to organized labor and unions um, by you know, enforcing strong procurement and labor standards, uh, which I think is very encouraging. Uh, in my view, unions are essential to a uh, healthy and equitable democracy and economy. Um, but I think there's also this question of scale. And while the American Jobs Plan, I think, is you know really big, I mean, we're talking in trillions of dollars of figures here. It's over $2 trillion. And when you combine that with the American Families Plan, which is $1.8 yeah, that's so that's a lot of um, public investment. Yeah. Uh, but if anything, actually, I think that, uh, especially with the jobs report that came in today, which showed that yeah. um, job growth is actually slowing in, in the economy, uh, as well as some compelling evidence from uh, various economists, including Paul Krugman in his, in his most recent op-ed, uh, that there aren't actual real concerns about inflation right now. Uh, that we should actually be investing even more into the economy to decarbonize and also to achieve full employment. Um, you know, I think Biden often talks about his desire to lead an LBJ or FDR sized presidency. Yeah. And one thing that both of those Democratic presidents had in common was that they did aim for, you know, full employment, a situation where everyone who wants a job in the economy can can find a job. Uh, and that's not just a good thing because it's good for people to have work and the benefits that come with work, uh, but also because it rebalances the power between you know the managers and owners of capital and the labor market um, yeah. and gives workers more bargaining power. And there's a compelling study from um, the Political Economic Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst that suggests that to you know take on uh, decarbonization and to move the economy to full employment, we should be investing something on the scale of $1 trillion per year over 10 years or $10 trillion over 10 years. Yeah. So I would say that um, there's going to be a lot of back and forth between the different ideological camps, between moderates and progressives, especially over the coming months about the American Jobs Plan. And one of the core things is going to be on the scale um, and scope of the investments mm -hmm. with progressives. Uh, saying that we need to go bigger and bolder, perhaps even bigger and bolder than uh, what the president has uh, put forward. Yeah. Leah, 
Yeah, for my own, I think that's so uh, right, Julian. The challenge with me and Julian on this podcast is we really agree with each other on all these things. <laughs> I know so. the tension here, guys, the, the dramatic tension. tension. <laughs> Ugh, I can't believe he said that. Um, but uh, I think, too, that, you know, this is the best opportunity we have had in a decade to do climate policy. It's the best opportunity we've had to do comprehensive climate legislation you know, since Waxman Markey. And, and it's way bigger and bolder than even that package was. And so yeah. I'm really hopeful about this bill passing. I think it's so great strategically that the Biden administration has put it on the top of the agenda. You know, we're not in year two, you know, bottom of the ninth kind of thing here. We're saying, hey, this is the agenda before we get to, let's say, the fall of this year to pass a climate bill. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's tight votes in the Senate. There's even tight votes in the House. But I feel like we can pull together, we can focus on job creation, we can focus on investment, get a lot of benefits here, and that everybody will see something that they like in this package, I hope, except maybe oil and gas. Um, but that's the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, we're trying to stabilize the climate over here. So, you know, I think there's a really, really big shot and we all need to pull together to try to get this across the finish line. Yeah, totally. Um, let's talk a little bit about agencies. Um, Julian, as as Leah mentioned at the top, you were a huge proponent of Deb, Ho Deb Holland's appointment to head up the Department of Interior. And it's early days, obviously, but curious how you think things are going. What does she need to get done and what can she get done recognizing that she is a visionary working in, you know, a little bit of a dinosaur of an institution, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so um, I was really proud to advocate for Madam Secretary Holland to become Madam Secretary Holland. Um, she was formerly the Congresswoman from New Mexico um, and is a citizen of the Laguna Pueblo. And as a native woman is actually the first Native American to ever serve in the United States cabinet, um, which is just you know a remarkable achievement. And I think speaks firstly to um, just how incredible of a, a leader and politician she is, because you know the truth of the matter is that she was not you know a sort of insider who was tight with the president and his camp. Um, you know she was only elected to the Congress in 2018, and um, you know she just didn't have those relationships and connections. And I think that's where um, a bit of wish casting and organizing. Um, and just a really compelling story came in and elevated her uh, to become, you know, sort of uh, an, an outside candidate for what is a really significant role. Um, and as a journalist and activist, I, you know, helped sort of drum up support um, in the press and, and social media and among sort of networks of environmentalists and progressives and tribal leaders and such. Um, and I think that that part is also really key to getting her into that role. And I think to me, that's really encouraging because it suggests that, you know, with a good idea and some hard work and some organizing, mm -hmm. um, good things really can happen uh, through the political process, which all too often feels, um, you know, like an impossible nut to crack in so many ways and just such an unjust system. Yeah. Um, you know, the Interior Department is an enormous, enormous sprawling bureaucracy. Uh, it manages a fifth of the nation's landmass, huge reserves of natural resources, as well as the nation-to-nation -nation relationship with the 574 federally recognized tribes across the country. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, it has also been deeply implicated in the colonization and attempted assimilation of First Peoples throughout its history. So in the late 1800s, it implemented the Dawes Act, which was a, a policy to uh, privatize and essentially alienate tribal lands that were held collectively. Uh, it helped to um, further the mission of boarding schools where native children were taken away to uh, and forced into assimilation where they were uh, often um, abused and beaten for speaking their languages and maintaining their cultures. And into the 20th century, it also you know, played a significant role in the era of termination, which was a uh, a stated policy of just that terminating uh, tribal nations, and you know that's um, that's a lot of history to come up against if you're if you're Secretary Holland, and you know I, I think that expectations for her are going to be incredibly high, um, but I think also you know these kinds of things don't don't change overnight. You know that kind of a ship can't turn ninety degrees in yeah. in a few months. Um, but I think there are some encouraging signs already. So, for example, actually, just today, um, the Department of Interior, along with USDA, Department of Commerce, uh, and CEQ, that's the Council of Environmental Quality, uh, released a report sort of outlining how the United States would start to achieve this goal of conserving 30% of its lands and waters by 2030. This was one of the many commitments President Biden made uh, among those executive orders he signed just a week into his presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, and among the core principles that that report out, uh, identified was upholding tribal sovereignty and pursuing indigenous-led conservation. So essentially yeah. uh, starting to return lands and waters and resources to native control as part of a broader, broader environmental strategy. Um, so I'm really, I'm really hopeful that uh, those kinds of policies will continue to be pursued and that Secretary Holland's, you know, path-breaking um, leadership will also mean uh, some some pretty significant, uh, meaningful change for tribal nations and for for everybody. Yeah, I have to say, I just think it's incredibly courageous to take on leadership of a department with that much, really horrifying history, um, and also just you know, uh, ways of doing things that are certainly not in alignment with a, a just and livable future and to be willing to step in and try to do that kind of healing and and change work um, that, you know, is hard on a good day and really hard in a sprawling bureaucracy. Um, Leah, uh, I would be remiss if we didn't touch on the Department of Energy, um, which of course is playing a huge role as well in the administration's climate work. What's your read on what's happening over there? Yeah, so similarly, I think President Biden went with a pretty bold leader in uh, former Governor Jennifer Granholm. Um, you know, Secretary Granholm is a really big champion of clean energy. She is a energizer bunny so to speak she has endless energy and enthusiasm i feel like in some ways we are similar in that regard uh you know she's just enthusiastic at all levels at all times so i feel like she's going to really bring a lot of energy to the topic so to speak um <laughs> but i'm ching yeah 
And you know what I mean if you've ever seen her speak. So, you know, and I think from her on down, there have been amazing decisions made. So I mentioned earlier a bunch of people at DOE. So people like Shalonda Baker have been brought in to sort of lead a new initiative on on energy justice and environmental justice in the DOE. Um, Wahela Johns, too, working on some of the issues that she was working on outside of government, now doing that inside. Um, people like uh, Jeremiah Bowman, who is a longtime politico, so to speak, who is on the inside working for clean energy, uh, great outcomes. Um, I have a lot of friends doing stuff like transmission, you know, trying to get rid of the rollbacks under um, the Trump administration. I think that the uh, political appointments have been rock solid across the board at DOE. Um, mm -hmm. Amy Wittemann just got announced actually to be going in there to be doing intergovernmental affairs. So really fantastic climate leaders who understand the the challenge ahead of us. And I think that the agency is very oriented towards the Biden administration priorities. So things like how can we get a clean electricity standard passed this year? And Secretary Granholm has actually made comments that she thinks we can do it even through budget reconciliation, which is really important because we cannot seem to find Republicans to support a clean electricity standard despite years of effort. And actually, um, I wrote a report that was that came out with Data for Progress, Julian's organization, as well as Evergreen Action, showing how we can do a clean electricity standard through budget reconciliation. So, you know, she's clearly in the weeds on this stuff and wants to see real progress on clean energy. So I feel really excited about the direction of the Department of Energy as well. Nice. There's also a great GIF of you zooming around, Leah, uh, of doing your hand motion for budget reconciliation. It's like rainbows and sparkles. And I do feel like Secretary Granholm might be down with that. Yeah. <laughs> that Similar vibe. Energy. We, got, we got energy on energy, me and her. Yeah. We um we touched on the 40% commitment in the American Jobs Plan um, of of sending those funds to impacted and frontline communities. But Touching back on what you were saying, Julian, about, you know, would Biden approach climate differently than Obama or would this be more of the same? Um, what are we seeing that is distinctly different and specifically different when it comes to the topic of environmental justice? Yeah, so I would say that the Justice 40 uh, commitment, which is, you know, again, a commitment to dedicating 40% of benefits. And I think there's actually going to be a lot of, a lot there in what ends up being defined as a benefit. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to follow that very keenly is a key sort of piece of the Biden sort of theory of how to do um, not just climate, but to do all of his infrastructure investments. Um, and I think the the core idea here is that you know, an investment in a clean energy economy uh, can also start to address some of the harms that existed uh, and persist in the fossil fuel economy. Um, you know, not just through the creation of jobs, but also through the reduction of pollution. You know, in many um, low-income communities of color, like Oakland, where I grew up, uh, there are very high rates of asthma and in other environmentally caused uh, harms um, in those communities. And, you know, those things are fully preventable. Um, we, we should have replaced every single lead pipe in this country a long time ago. Um, and it's actually really great that the Biden administration has prioritized that as part of the American Jobs Plan 
even though that, you know, lead pipes have nothing to do at the end of the day with greenhouse gas emissions. That is just simply good policy, good environmental policy, good infrastructure and jobs policy. Um, and it also is incredibly popular. So um, in my view, every single time a Democrat goes and talks about the American Jobs Plan, they should be talking about how we're going to replace every lead pipe in the country. It's a really, really good and popular idea. Yeah. Um, I think one core thing here that is also really important is actually just understanding the, the scope of environmental injustice in this country. So essentially, um, all of the latest research on small particulate matter in the air suggests that um, the more we learn about very, very fine particles that we, that we are breathing in, uh, the more we learn about how harmful they in fact are and can be. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we actually do not have a very strong um, data collection uh, sort of apparatus built up across the country to really understand in detail uh, what sort of pollution, you know, Americans are being exposed to. And so, you know, one of the core parts of the Justice 40 agenda that I hope um, gets built very quickly is actually developing those sorts of data collection and mapping capacities to even be able to start to identify, uh, you know, with data on um, both socioeconomic um, realities as well as sort of pollution and other cumulative burdens that these communities yeah. face, um, where exactly are the most sort of burdened communities and sort of uh, then be able to equip lawmakers and policymakers with the knowledge to be able to do, you know, smart policy-based and empirically-based interventions. Um, and so that's, I think, going to be a really key component of, of all of this. And um, I'm really hopeful that they don't sort of fudge around the edges of what a benefit is and really, you know, try to make that a meaningful thing. Yeah, that's a really critical distinction. And I'm glad you flagged it, Julian. I'm glad to know you'll be tracking that um, and and keeping a, a spotlight on that as, as things go forward. Um, just a, a quick reminder to everyone who's watching live that we're going to be taking some of your questions soon. So if you have questions, and I suspect you do, throw those into the chat and we'll get to them in a minute. Um, we're going to close out our time, just the, the three of us, with um, one of the things we have become kind of keen on doing, which is a, a sort of rapid fire closing a little a little energy as we transition into some audience q a um so we'll go from leah to julian um and i'll just keep these coming so leah give us one word to summarize the state of u.s climate policy at this moment potential going with potential julian encouraging nice what is the number one thing you want to see in the American Jobs Plan beyond better aspirations around buildings? Leah. Uh, the clean electricity standard, obviously. <laughs> if we get 80% clean power by 2030, we'll cut carbon dioxide 86%, uh, sulfur dioxide 93%, nitrous oxide 76% from the power sector. Transformative policy, double clean power, clean power in 10 years. I mean, clean electricity standard. So excited about it. Coming in hot with the numbers. Julian, what about you? The number one thing. I'm, I'm actually going to second Leah on this one. I think that the clean electricity standard is is essential. There is so much carrot in the American Jobs Plan with incentives and investments. 
I think we do need that stick though. And the clean electricity standard is a core one for the power sector. Nice. Leah, the number one executive action you'd like to see still to come this year. I'd like to see some tightening of various power sector uh, things. So things like the mercury toxic standard, uh, rules around coal pollution, coal ash, coal waste, those kinds of things. Because that's another way that we can get into the power sector through the uh, regulations. Nice. What about you, Julian? Um, I think that methane re regulations on methane leakage are really important. The more that we learn about uh, methane in the air and trace it back to natural gas or fossil gas, the more we should be concerned about that phenomenon. Um, and I think there's also other ways that we can start uh, regulating fracking as well as, um, as Leah was bringing up earlier, you know, indoor air pollution, both of which are really essential. Absolutely. Great answer, Julian. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a slightly different mode, give us a song that you're listening to right now that's pumping you up for climate. Leah Stokes. Trying to remain optimistic. You know, the pathway to the legislation passing is treacherous. And so Good as Hell by Lizzo has got to be my soundtrack yes. right now. Keep me going. I love it. What about you, Julian? Uh, Rough Riders Anthem, uh, rest in peace, DMX. Yeah. Nice. Oh, very cool. I'm I'm seeing a Spotify playlist possibly in the future here. <laughs> um, and uh, what about some lines of poetry or other wisdom that's guiding you and keeping you grounded, Leah? Well, I love Mary Oliver. I'm sure you do too, Catherine. And there's a line of her poem, which is, may I be a tiny nail in the house of this universe, tiny but useful. And I always try to orient myself towards how can I make a difference? How can I make a difference in this world? Beautiful. Julian? I'm rereading N. Scott Mamaday's first novel, Housemaid of Dawn, which is not poetry, mm -hmm. but it actually started as a collection of poems, became a collection of stories, and then ended up becoming a novel. So um, it's a very lyrical book. Beautiful. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Thank you all so much. And we're going to turn to some of the audience questions before, before we run out of time. Um, so the first one we've got, has the pandemic, which has exposed so many social justice and environmental fault lines in this country, made action on climate change more or less achievable? Maybe I'll go first. Um, you know, I think some people thought that 
the pandemic was how we were going to solve climate change. Like we we're all going to live in our houses alone, never go anywhere. And that is not how we're going to solve climate change. We're going to decouple pollution from our economy. We're not going to shut down our economy. So I just want to clarify that, that this is not the same thing as climate action. But, you know, the, the sad thing about all this huge economic fallout from all the massive death uh, across this country, overwhelmingly in communities of color. The, the thing is that we have an economic crisis. And so how do we solve that problem? I think that Biden is right, uh, that the way we solve that problem is by doing clean energy jobs, by you know investing in our, in our economy. And so this does provide an opportunity to say, how do we wanna build back, as Biden would say, we wanna build back clean, right? We want to build back better. And so that's the way in which we, we have this opportunity to really invest in our economy. Julian, you want to add anything? Yeah, I would say that the pandemic has revealed um, sort of the poverty of free market approaches to trade and supply chains. So, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, we had shortages of PPE um, you know, it was hard to get masks and, and things like that. And, um, you know, one of the core sort of ways of looking at climate policy is as essentially a supply chain issue, is essentially as an industrial policy issue. And I think one of the core um, philosophical uh, and economic sort of shifts underlying Bidenomics, if you want to call it that, uh, is this orientation towards uh, industrial policy and away from quote unquote neoliberalism, you know, to really say that we need to be focusing on, um, you know, making more resilient and robust industries, particularly here in the United States, which, you know, will help us in the next pandemic. And we'll also make sure that like, you know, we have enough semiconductors and, you know, can build electric vehicles in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and, and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, this one's a little more philosophical. Is the slowness of democracy antithetical to real on-time fixes to climate issues? <laughs> well, well, scientists got to take that one first, yeah. yeah. I didn't know if that was like, ooh, I'm going to jump in, or like, ooh, wow, ooh, this is a tough one. I think that was the latter. Um, you know, I don't think so. I think democracy is challenging, um, but it's kind of the system we have and it's better than the alternative. Sometimes people live in this fantasy that if we were in sort of a fascist country or an authoritarian country, we could just impose climate action. But I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that that, that, that is actually a pathway to a greener world personally. So I believe in democracy. I believe in the process. Congress is obviously not fully democratic. Certain people have more voices than others. Some people have no voices, right? Like DC and Puerto Rico, undocumented people, non-citizens. I'm not even a citizen. I cannot vote in this country. So, you know, a, a lot- damn shame, I will someday say. Someday soon, very soon, <laughs> I'm applying. Anyway, you know, so obviously not everybody gets a voice and our democracy is not full and perfect by any means, but it's the system that we have and we have those 50 votes thanks to Georgia and thanks to the organizing work of largely black women in that state and the great um, outcome for Ossoff and Warnock, and we've got the house. And so, hey, we have a window. We can do something here. So I yeah. think we got to work with the system that we got, and democracy can make change uh, when it comes to climate policy. Yeah. 
right. Yeah, I would I would agree with what Leah just said. And our democracy in particular is um, among global democracies relatively unrepresentative of you know what the popular voice is of voters. Um, you know, in particular, the Senate is a significant problem. And if, you know, Republicans succeed at redistricting in ways that draw lines mm -hmm. to their favor ahead of the 2022 uh, midterm elections, it's going to become an even greater challenge. Uh, the Electoral College also actually because of the way that it works, you know, disproportionately benefits rural um, and predominantly white parts of this country and states. And, um, you know, I think that the majority of the country uh, believes in climate change, wants to see wants to see their government act on climate change. It's just yeah. that um, you know we we do have a system that allows for forms of minority rule, which is undemocratic. And yeah. to add on to Julian's excellent point, you know, we shouldn't be waiting for a better time for a more perfect policy to pass. I've heard a few people say that, and I just think, how do you think that went down with Waxman Markey? You know, we waited to 10 years. Policy yeah. windows do not come around very often. And like Julian is saying, 2022 could be really bad. Look what's going on in Georgia right now. The disenfranchisement of people. You know, we're going to have even harder yeah. time with our elections going forward because unfortunately the Republican Party has become quite anti-democratic, to be honest. So I think we take the opportunity when we have it. We try to push for everything we've got, but we don't think that we could come back later and get a better opportunity later. No, this feels like this feels honestly like the window we weren't sure if we were ever going to have. Right. Yeah. Um, we've got to take it till January it 5th, your open. birthday. Right, Catherine? Exactly. It was an extremely good birthday, I will say. Um, so this is a this is a really interesting question, given that climate change poses substantial health threats. Um, we, and we've talked also about health threats of burning fossil fuels and using fossil fuels in our homes. Could you comment on the relative absence of HHS, of Health and Human Services, in the Biden administration's climate actions? Hmm. Well, there are some programs that run through HHS, and I hope I'm getting them right. Like I think LIHEAP, for example, and I think perhaps the Weatherization Assistance Program. These are programs that help people retrofit their homes, particularly low-income people, communities of color. Um, a lot of people have really leaky homes, you know, that aren't that are really expensive actually to heat mm -hmm. and uh, have more pollution associated with them. So we do have some programs that run through that um, particular thing. Oh no, I'm thinking of HUD. I'm not thinking of health and human services, but the point yeah, still stands ahead. that there are other agencies that are involved in these pieces. Um, but the funny thing about agencies, as I just talked about HUD, um, is that sometimes things fit in places you don't expect. So for mm -hmm. example, the Department of Energy has like a massive nuclear weapons uh, budget. In fact, the majority of the Department of Energy is actually about managing nuclear weapons and the stockpiles and proliferation. And so, you know, it could be that some of the health pieces actually fit in EPA, believe mm -hmm. it or not. That's where a lot of the health pieces live in the climate yeah. world. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I would also just say that there's a big categorization question that comes along with some of this, you know, climate policy stuff. Um, you know, for example, I think that replacing every lead pipe in the country is great policy, great infrastructure yep. development also has nothing to do with greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think the place to look would be uh, sort of the environmental justice suite of issues and, you know, included in something like an updated equity mapping system would, of course, be mm. uh, data on pollution and, you know, the impacts that that has on on health. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, our time is up, which I'm bummed about. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and share everything that you're tracking and observing and just for a great conversation as ever. Thank you so much for having me. We should do uh, round three sometime. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Julian and Drs. Stokes and Wilkinson for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.